All right, here we are. Episode two. I don't have a Jameson roll in here. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier. I've, I've actually had a few. <laughs> nice. It'll be good for you. <laughs> but I don't actually have a drink on my table with me. I'm enjoying a coffee right now. Nice. Do you brew your own? Like, how, do, how What do you do? It depends. We have a cappuccino machine, so, um, you know, like if I'm feeling extra like if i've got time i'll you know i'll go get the beans i'll grind them up in the grinder put them in the cappuccino machine and make a nice cappuccino and uh it's great i love it it's a lot of fun i actually like it um i got it for my birthday last year so we use it a lot but if it's like if we're on the run it's i hate to say this but you know i'm not ashamed to pull out an instant coffee on the way out the door Mm. so yeah what do you what kind of instant coffee? Uh Nescafe or Taster's Choice usually. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever tried those Via coffees from Starbucks? No. Via. What's li- that? Never had one. Li- or maybe it's Via. I don't know how to pronounce it, but Okay. It's um actually I read Howard Schultz's book. He's the CEO, I think now ex CEO of Starbucks. And he in his book he talked about how Starbucks was trying to create a very high quality instant coffee. So he created this Via. Oh, V-I-A. I've seen them. They come in those long tubes, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've had them. They're pretty good. Yeah, they are. They are. Uh, we've had some here, and uh, we actually, I grind my own coffee. I have this like grinder upstairs. Yeah. Okay. I do the same. But but the Via coffee things are actually pretty good substitutes, and I need to buy some just so I have them. Yeah, and they've got different flavors. Yeah, yeah, and strengths and stuff. Yeah, nice. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, they don't sell them in the local grocery store, so I can't can't go out and buy a whack load of uh, Starbucks instant coffee. Anyway, whatever. I mean, Mm. I'm not... I'm not a proud coffee drinker. I'm not a coffee snob. I like a good coffee. I enjoy a good coffee. But there are people that are so coffee snobbery, like, or they have so much coffee snobbery that that they have to buy the beans and they're still green and they have to roast them and on a pan. And then that's the only coffee that they're going to drink because they're like mm-hmm. coffee connoisseur. You know, like, shut up. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do like coffee and I I sort of bounce between black coffee and cream and sugar and milk and sugar and just milk but it usually depends on the quality i'm a just milker oh you're just a milker yep (laughs) just a milker (laughs) oh man all right what are we starting with um well you had mentioned okay so we had talked about this topic a few times the whole idea of um would you know when you want to die or how you're going to die? And I've thought about this, and I don't think there's any question wait, about let's, it. Well, hold think... on, wait, let's, let's clarify the okay. question. So the question right. is, would you rather know when you're going to die or how you're going to die? Yeah, didn't I just say that? Sort of. I'm just making sure it's okay. clear. You, you kind of All right, but... all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's a good question. But um, I've thought about it multiple times, um, not just 
when we have discussed it, but on my own. And I don't think there's any question. I think you, I would only want to know when. There's not a chance I would want to know how I was going to die. Mm. Because I'd never leave the house. I would be afraid that it was going to happen every second I stepped out of the house. I mean, if it was, you know, <laughs> like an anvil falling out of the sky, <laughs> there's no way I would leave the house. <laughs> I just had this, like, uh, image of, uh, what is it, Roadrunner and Coyote? Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting smashed with an anvil on the head. Anyway, um, I don't know. I, I I don't think I would ever want to know how, only when. Okay, because you've got opportunity to change things, right? Or you can live your life. You can be, uh, you know, I know when I'm going to die. So for the next three weeks, I can live it up or I can make amends with all the people that I didn't treat, po- like I treated poorly or I didn't treat properly. You've got opportunity to change things or do whatever you want. And then as in, when it comes, you don't know. Boom. It just happens. Yeah. But isn't that kind of one of those weird gifts, not knowing when? Yes. I guess. But I guess it's a gift to know when as well. You know? I Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know that you'd ever... You'd probably have to ask somebody who... um, You know, occasionally somebody... Okay, here's an example. My, my daughter, her best friend's mother uh, died of cancer back in um, May. Mm-hmm. Okay, May or June. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it was terribly sad. I knew her. I knew her well. But she knew that she was going to die. And she knew how she was going to die. She just didn't know the exact day or time. She had a time frame. It was going to happen quickly. It was going to happen within the next six weeks. Is that a gift? I don't know. When we went to her funeral, she had done things like uh, she cut up all these little tiny hearts out of like cardboard paper. And it was like a almost like... um not rainbow but it had several different colors in it like a like almost like a tie dye right so it had all these different colors it was nice it was pretty and she took the time to cut out like 500 of these little hearts and she put them in a jar and the idea was at the end of the funeral you passed in front of the um like the area that had her memorial um, and you reached into the jar, and you took this little heart, and it was about remembering her, right? Just taking a little piece of her and remembering her. And I thought, you would never have that opportunity to do that unless you knew when you were going to die. That reminds me a little bit of the living the living funerals, or whatever they're called, where you hold a funeral while you're alive. <sighs> My dad and mom just went to one of those. Yeah, continue. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of that, that what you're saying is a bit of a little bit of a reminded me of that and thinking being in a it's it's a i don't know why what you said there made me think living funeral but whether it was the takeaway from those hearts so the the hearts were made by the lady that was going to die or did die yeah yeah I mean, she, and she was well-loved, and she knew it. I mean, her funeral was packed. She was in a church of, there was at least 500 people there. I mean, she was really well-connected. She was really well-known. She was involved with the school. She was involved with several charities. She was involved with the church. And, I mean, she was a well-known person. So for her to cut up these 500 hearts, it wasn't like she was thinking, oh, uh, you know, she wasn't having grandiose thoughts of, of how popular she was. She knew it. 
I mean, mm-hmm. but she was very gracious, and she wasn't stuck up, or um, she was simply doing this out of the love that she had for all of the people that she thought might attend her funeral. And to be honest, there were more people than I thought were going to show up, and I knew it would be well attended, but it was kind of, you know, a bit stunning, actually, see how many people showed up. And then all these people were walking in front and collecting these little tiny hearts and sobbing, right, because it was such a nice little gift that she left everybody. Like, don't forget me, remember me, you know, which, I don't know. I mean, I thought it was kind of sweet. Yeah, well. It was touching. So your parents went to a living funeral? or Yeah, well, hold on. Before we get to that, we should find out what you think, because I've clearly taken the side of the when versus the how. Yeah, I think I, think I agree with you. Knowing how you're going to die, I don't think there's really a lot of benefit to knowing. There's no upside, because... If that's how you're going to die, then you can't do anything about it even if you wanted to. Conceivably, if our question is, would you rather know how you're going to die or when you're going to die? So if if how you're going to die is decided, then no matter what, if, you, if you're told, well, you died because you drowned, even if I avoid, it's like one of those Twilight Zone episodes, Okay, let's say I know I'm going to die by drowning, so I'll never go into a, a pool or into a body of water or near Oh, totally water. never do that. Yeah, if I knew. But yeah, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. Then you would end up dying by, I don't know, a truck tipping over that's full of water while you're driving on the highway and you know, something <laughs> weird like that. That's why I said I would never leave the house. If I knew how, I would never right. leave. And so what would happen is a tsunami would hit Markham or Stouffville. Or I would drown in the bathtub yeah, exactly. or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think there's no advantage to knowing how because you can't change it anyway. So if it was you died of a heart attack and it was caused by really bad diet, no matter how well you eat, that's not going to solve it because your destiny is to die that way. So you can't correct it anyway. The yeah. the downside to knowing when is that if someone told you in nine years you're going to die, you'd be thinking about it every single day. And I guess that could be a good thing, but I find, I think I would be preoccupied with it and it would kind of overtake. Well, maybe it wouldn't. I mean, how does a 85-year-old feel? Does an 85-year-old go to bed every night thinking, I wonder if I'm going to wake up tomorrow? I, you know, I thought the same thing not too long ago. My grandfather is 92. Um, and, I mean, he can still... Okay, so he came over to visit us. We, you, as you know, we just recently moved. So he came over to visit us at our new place. And we have, um, you know, like a basement level that's mostly finished, a, uh, a main level, and then a second floor, right? So um, he comes in the front door. And, you know, there's a couple of steps to, to get up. Uh, from the walkway so up a couple of steps no problem in the front door Uh, we show him around the house we take him downstairs okay so he's got to go down all these stairs and then he's got to come back up and then we go back up to the second floor so we go up the stairs and then he's got to come back tell me you didn't kill the man like doing this no I didn't kill him of course I didn't but what I'm saying is he was 92 and the guy is in fantastic shape like I mean it's not like he would get up and run or anything like that but for him to be able to come to the house walk through our house um, 
down a flight of stairs, up a flight of stairs. I mean, we're not talking three stairs here. We're talking like 14, 15 stairs or whatever a normal flight of stairs is for, uh, you know. And and so he does that twice um, without much effort. I mean, it was a little bit of effort, but he wasn't winded. It's not like at the end of it he was huffing and puffing. And so to me, because he's in such great shape, I don't think he thinks that he's going to die at the end of every night. I I don't know. I just I almost want to ask him like grandpa when you go to bed, do you uh do you think this is your last day? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> And and I don't <laughs> the great thing is I don't think he's changed one iota from uh who he was 30 years ago. Like he's still uh well he drinks less. I mean, he had, he might have a beer or something now just but just one whereas before he would have, you know, maybe several, right? But he's in great shape. I don't know that he th- goes to bed at night and thinks uh this could be my last night. Do, I don't know. Do you ever do you ever do the math where you say okay, I'm 45 and you know, average lifespan, let's say 80, let's say you imagine yourself to live to 90. So you do the math and you say, oh, I've got 45 more years to live. Okay. <laughs> so I have one better for you. I, I don't, but <laughs> my wife's father has this thing where um, now he's, I guess he's close to 70. So uh, yeah, he's got to be close to 70 because I know my dad's 70 this year. How old's your dad? No, my dad is. 76 this year or 77 okay All 41 right. he was born so what's that 40 77 yeah just yeah. turned 77 okay, so my dad's 70 uh francis dad's close to 70 she's a little bit younger than i am he has this thing where he'll constantly drop these comments where he'll say oh yeah i don't have much time left i gotta get everything in that i can and i'm like stop talking that way like okay which brings me to my next topic we're gonna talk about this in a second um but he he would he, he'll say, like, okay, no, I'll say to him, stop saying stuff like that. It's freaking me out, number one. And number two, it's not true. It's not necessary for you to talk that way. And he says, and this is what he said all the time, famous for saying this, pulls out a tape measure, okay, and says, if your lifespan, what's the average lifespan in Canada, right? 74, I think, or something? Yeah, it might be a bit older now, maybe 80. Okay. So let's just say it's 75, mm-hmm. okay? So he'll pull out a tape measure and he'll go, when you're... 14 years old you have your whole life in front of you right you've got all the way from 14 to 74 or 75 okay but he's he's like i'm here now i have this much left on the tape measure and i'm like ah stop it first of all you have no health issues that we know of number one number two you're still building places like he's a a contractor so he still builds homes and things like that i mean he hasn't he's slowed down but he's still building a house right now. So to me, if you're active and you're moving around and you're you're living life, that tape measure extends for me. Mm. Like it's it's longer than you think you've got, right? But it, I guess it doesn't um, hurt. It's when you slow it down. It doesn't hurt to have that tape measure be here and then as you hit that, you get get to slide it over. I guess, but you're, you know, but then he's He's saying he's on borrowed time. I'm like, God, come on, man, just stop. But does it that. preoccupy and him? That, like, does he? Is he? Is I there a negative does. side to that? Like, do you see him behave negatively because of it, or is it just the sound of it is disturbing? Um, like hearing him say that. I. Th- 
So I think that language is very important. And so this is what I what I was saying would lead into our, our next kind of topic. I think language is so important in how you address things. And I'm not perfect. I'm saying I do stuff too. But um, when you say things like, I don't have much time left, you're setting your body up for disappointment, right? Your brain will make things happen the way you phrase things uh, in words, especially if you believe it. Like if you say something silly to a kid, like, um, you know, I don't know, I can't think of anything right now, but if you say something silly and your mind doesn't believe it because you know that you're not um, uh, actually meaning it, then you're not actually going to have that come to fruition. But if you say things like, uh, I can't do that, or I don't have the ability to do something. You're, you don't. You absolutely don't. And I'm not saying that, you know, like some people have a genetic disposition to be better at sports or better at something, right? But if you, if you say that you can do something or that you're going to strive to become better at doing something, your brain will make that happen. It might take time, and it's going to take effort from you as a person. There's a famous saying, and I forget who said it, but... It's it goes like this: If you say you can or can't, you're right. You're right, and I, it's to me that says it all mm-hmm. right there. So to bring that back to the way he thinks, he's thinking that he only has this much left on the tape measure, and I'm thinking, no, you can't think that way because then when you get to the end of the tape measure. You'll. F- I. I honestly believe this that your body will start to decline. So when you've got it in your head already that at seventy-five I'm probably going to die. Maybe by the time you hit seventy-four, your body really starts to rapidly decline. Yeah. And in my head, in my head, I don't know how you think, but I. I want to live till I'm ninety-five. Mm-hmm, me too. Is that sort of like when some? Have you ever heard of those those situations where they tell a class of not very good students that they're they've just done a test on them and told them that their intelligence is above average or higher than it's higher than any group of kids in the school and that their performance then improves on the next like as they go throughout the school year I've never heard of yeah, that Yeah it's like telling people it's sort of um there's a there's an expression for it but it's like you're accepting something when if you're told oh you're not very smart enough times and you'll believe it so there's there was this test or situation where they took a group of students who were at the bottom end of the 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 class put them in a room together and for the next six months they made them believe that they had scored the highest out of any other students on an intelligence test and then by the Uh, and then their ability and their their grades went up enormously because they believe that was that was true and and the results actually um it worked out that way even though they weren't oh that's that's yeah. great i uh that kind of happened that kind of happened to me actually i i <laughs> they told you you're really smart well i was in i was in a class where so i had moved schools i went to a new school and i'm i I guess I got off to a really good start in this particular class and I got an amazing score on the first test, like an 85 or 88. And I think I was probably a bit surprised by it, but it was like it set the tone for the rest of the year that that teacher suddenly, not suddenly because he never knew me before, 
But I had gone to the same school for four years, and then I switched to a new school, had this great test result, and now in this teacher's eyes, I was one of the best students in the class. And he would talk to me like I was the best student in the class. Like, he would ask me, did you find today, do you think it was too tough for everybody? Like, what do you think? Oh, you were the benchmark. You became the benchmark. And from that point on, I never wanted to prove him any like wrong like I wanted to I tr- I studied harder because of it I I had this like reputation and it was like it just because of this great test result and his impression of me I did work harder I did try harder and I got like 88 or something was my grade and like I was a 65 at best student up to that point so it was just interesting how how that worked. That is interesting. So that really lends credence to the idea that no matter um, it, like how you think um, can really change the outcome mm-hmm. of your life. It is. I mean, there are all kinds of people out there that really subscribe to that kind of uh, um, thinking. And uh, I think that totally lends credence to it. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, I 100% believe it. I mean, um, just to use golf as an example, okay? I, I like playing golf. I enjoy it. Many people do. When you go up to a shot that, even if it's an easy shot, and you're thinking in your head, I've got to get this, you know, within, it's got to be on the green. I want it to putt and get off the green. And, you, and you're thinking in your head a lot about it. And if you have that shadow of a doubt that, well, what if I shank this shot what if I chunk it what if I skim it and it like skips across the green what if you know so there's so many things that are going on in your head and if you've got all that stuff in your head I almost guarantee you one of those things is going Mm -hmm. to happen so unless you're thinking oh this is an easy shot I'm going to completely um nail this and it's going to land softly on the green roll within two feet of the cup and I'm going to be able to birdie the hole unless you have that thinking you're not going to hit that shot. Yeah. Any doubt, any shred of doubt, they tell you, an, an expert will tell you, step away from the ball and then address it again with a better mind frame. Well, I'm going to move to quirky news. Fire away. So have you heard about these public urinals that they've installed in Paris? It's no. Called... Are they the ones that have glass and you can see out while no. you're... No. Um, it's called the Urinoir. It looks like a mailbox okay. is how I best describe it. And uh, it's described as a set of eco-friendly but completely exposed urinals deployed on the streets of Paris are provoking uproar, uproar from locals. One of the bright red urinoirs installed not far from Notre Dame Cathedral and overlooking tourist boats passing, I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong, the Seine River, S-E-I-N-E, Seine, Seine River, has caused particular indignations. Locals have written to the town hall to demand its removal and are planning a petition. Okay, hold on. Let me me get this straight. So it's a urinal. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just there in public, so you can walk up to it, unzip, like let it hang. Correct. You know, do your business, and then, uh, 
I can't. You'll have to send me a picture. I cannot believe that. That is, there's two parts of that to that that just make me okay. First of all, that's weird. Whose idea was that? Like whose idea does like who does that? But secondly, there's like almost this tiny shred of respect that I have where I could just see someone walk up, you know, excuse me, honey, hold my coffee, right, and then just unzip, take your whiz, and then off you go. I just. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think it was created as a result of people just, they were just peeing anywhere. So they say here, local mayor Ariel Vile insisted the devices were necessary. Uh, Paris authorities have rolled out four of the stand-up loos in spots where public peeing has been a problem, and a fifth is planned. If we don't do anything, then men are just going to pee in the streets, he said. If it is really bothering people, we'll find another location. So it kind of surprises me that they didn't put some sort of um, blockage around it, right? So that people wouldn't just be walking by. Because I could see a problem, you know. Some guys are pretty proud. Some guys like to hug the urinal and they get right in there. Others kind of like to stand about a foot away and dangle their manhood so that everybody can see and it's just yeah it's crazy i don't know i it's a crazy idea that they did that i could see somebody walking by and going oh man i just saw his pecker well there's so. even been some dis- uh, there's been some calls for discrimination here saying that um some have even branded the installation of these public urinals discriminatory why, because women can't? Right, it says they have been installed on a sexist proposition. Men cannot control themselves from a bladder point of view, and so all society has to adapt. The public space must be transformed to cause them minimum discomfort. It's absurd. Nobody needs to urinate in the street. <laughs> well, I don't know. As one who has urinated in the street, I mean... Uh... I, I don't know. <laughs> You're coming back from a bar and you've had multiple pints. Um, sometimes you got to deke down an alley and let one, you know, you got to let it fly. I, I've done it. It's not like a, a regular habit for me because I don't head to the pub for multiple pints on a regular basis. But you and I have done it where we've gone out and I have a great story to tell you about my brothers, actually. <laughs> we went to this concert in Ottawa. It was fantastic. And uh, uh, we enjoyed ourselves immensely. Uh, had many drinks, and uh, it was it was an outdoor event. So I don't know. It's something about outdoor events that you get carried away a little bit. And um, we got at the end of the the evening, uh, we came back. Uh, we took public transit because, of course, we knew we were going to be inebriated when we came back. And when we got off the bus, all three of us were like, "I can't, I can't make it. Like, we're gonna, we have to go to the bathroom." So we all stood about ten feet apart in this bush area. And in this bush area, there was like, um, like a, almost like a slanted, uh, like the ground kind of slanted downward. So we were standing at the top of that slant, and the slant would be in front of us. And my brother, <laughs> the three, okay, we're all 10 feet apart, all right? We're all going to the bathroom here. And uh, <laughs> and my brother falls forward into oh, the bushes, God. okay? And like mid-pee, which was 
awesome. And then both my brother, my other brother and I are killing ourselves laughing. And he's, he's gone. He's in the bushes. We can't see him. And then, boom, like he <laughs> springs up, like almost. And he's like, I'm all right. You know, like it was awesome. It was like an epic moment. And we talk about that story all the time. I have no idea if he was covered in pee. Uh, I have no idea. But, I mean... My wife says this all the time. She's like, you, you guys are so lucky. When you're in a pinch and you've got to go, the world's your toilet. You just find a quiet spot, you know, somewhere behind some shed or a bush or a tree. And Yeah, I noticed that having a daughter, when you have to get her to a bathroom, it's a totally different thing than just getting your son over by a, a you know, a go around a corner somewhere or go to a tree or a bush, like you said. And then when you have a daughter, it's like, oh, now I have to find a proper place to pee, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, they can't. I mean, yeah, it's it's a different animal. Yeah. So, okay, so let's just bring that back to the urinals. So what's the solution then? Like, do you put public toilets, sit-down toilets, and just keep them exposed the same way you would with the urinal like i can't imagine any woman unless she was either high or so smashed that um that she would use a public toilet in that same way because women have to basically half disrobe whereas men can kind of hide it a little bit right you can turn your body or with a urinal you can snuggle right up to it and have the urinal edges kind of hide it well if something tells me that they could do better than this I, I mean, yes, it, I can understand the disc, the discriminatory aspect. Yeah. So I guess what they're saying is only men do this. So you could take discriminatory from two perspectives. Number one, they haven't done anything for women in a sen- similar scenario by installing these urinoirs or whatever they're called. And so you're leaving them in the lurch. So... That's one aspect of the discrimination. And I guess if I've seen other cities, I think Boston had these bathrooms like ever out on the street. They were like kind of roundish booths and you would go you could go into one and it it, it would like completely clean its, itself. The whole washroom, like the inside of the washroom would wash itself out. After you left, wow, <laughs> that's that's futuristic. That's something you'd see in like Logan's Run or something. But so why can't they just install little like washrooms instead of these urinoirs or urinoirs or whatever they're called? Urit. The uh, official I, name I, is no. urinoir, a combination of the French words for urinal and pavement. Wow. I, I I don't even know what to say, Clark. I don't even know what to say. I think there's a bit of a public fascination with uh, the privacy of bathroom duties because, um, and I think there are a large portion of the population out there that have no problem with sharing that with people. And let me give you an example. I know that for a fact in London, uh, and I don't know if they still have it, but th- th- it was a big deal at the time. They had a bathroom that was in the middle of... I'm going to say Piccadilly Circus, but I don't know. It may have been near, maybe closer to where Buckingham Palace was. But in any case, it doesn't matter. The point is, it was a bathroom that was a square. Okay, it was a cube. So it was completely enclosed. It was a toilet. 
Um, and on the outside, you couldn't see in. But from the inside, you could see out. So it looked to... If you were inside, it almost felt like you were doing your business right. in the middle of a very busy area of all these people I've walking heard by. Of this. And people would come up. Yeah. And people would come up and they would actually like, you know, look in, try to look inside, but it was yeah, one way glass. I, I've heard so about this. So they couldn't this. see. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I think there's a, a weird fascination that the public has with the privacy of bathroom duties. Okay. So maybe to end it, what? Okay, so there's a problem. Obviously, the problem is people are urinating. Likely men are urinating in these areas of Paris. So what do you do about it? Well, I'm not the mayor, but I'd say get those things out of there. That just seems weird to me. Or enclose them. Make a public bathroom. I mean, we have parks here. We have brick structures that have toilets inside Uh, them. I think they could do better. I I think they could just, they could make a structure of some type that is in the same location and it's discreet, but it's a real structure, like a little, like with a door and you go in and there's a toilet. I think this is bizarre that they, (laughs) absolutely bizarre. Yeah, that is. Yeah. That is good. Hey, this is a good segment. I like this. We should come back and do this again. Uh, odd bits yeah. of news. Okay. And discuss. I think th- we should make this a regular. This is okay. a good one. Good.